The federal budget of the United States, more than $4 trillion. The annual deficit between 450 and 500 billion, the total federal debt, some $14 trillion. There is one man in the United States whose job it is more than it is that of any other to understand these staggering sums and to carry out President Trump's promise to reform the budget. That would be Mick Mulvaney. With us today, the director of the Office of Management and the Budget. Uncommon knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. John Michael Mulvaney was born in Virginia, grew up in North Carolina, and has lived most of his adult life in South Carolina. He holds an undergraduate degree from Georgetown University and a law degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. From 2011 until earlier this year, Mr. Mulvaney represented the 5th District of South Carolina in the House of Representatives, where, according to the New York Times, he earned a reputation for taking, quote, a hard line on spending, close quote. Last December, then-President-elect Donald Trump nominated Mr. Mulvaney as Director of the Office of Management and the Budget, and the Senate confirmed him in February. Mick Mulvaney, welcome. Peter, thank you so much for having me. All right. That introduction scares me to death. I'm, I'm the one who's supposed to understand all that? <laughs> yes, you are. I want to find out about you, but first, I want to find out about the budget. May 1st, the House releases a bill to fund discretionary spending for the next seven months of the fiscal year, a bill that you negotiated mm -hmm. with Congress, including Democrats. And now let me give you a few of the responses. The Atlantic Magazine, quote, Congress is giving the new president a boost in funding for the military and a little extra for border security, but that's about it. Close quote. Rush Limbaugh. If I'm the Democrats, a modest increase in spending is a small price to pay for continuing to fund Planned Parenthood, continuing to fund the EPA, and not building the wall. The Democrats think this is a big win. Ann Coulter, final one. If this is the budget deal we get when Republicans control the House, the Senate, and the presidency, there's no point in ever voting for a Republican again. Close quote. Mick Mulvaney. I love Ann. She's always so subtle. So, <laughs> so walk me through. First, sure. simply the technical question. Uh, you know, I drop my budget on January 2nd for the rest of the year. Why do we have a seven-month bill? What's going on here? It's actually less than it's five. Oh, it is? Yeah, I'm sorry. Here's All what's right. happened. Here's what happened is that ordinarily we do our budget. Now, keep in mind, in the federal government, budget is actually a three-step process. So what everybody else calls a budget is something different. But let's sort of mix our metaphors right. and pretend it's a household. We would do that in September of every year, right. and it would fund us from October 1st of a year to September 30th of the following year. That is our 12-month right. fiscal year. Right. Last year, in September, when President Obama was still here, he was not able to get a 12-month budget, a 12-month funding bill approved, because there was a couple of short terms that took us to the end of April. Right. Um, so the first seven months were funded under the Obama administration, the last five months, we got a chance at. Um, I've, I've, I've heard the list of criticisms, and I could go down them oh, one I, by I, one if you'd like want, to. I, want, I do want to give you a chance to do that. But, yes. the, but the point of the matter is, everything we got here was sort of found money for us. It's sort of a found opportunity. We should not have even been at the table. If President Obama had been able to pass a 12-month budget in September of 2016, we would be living under those spending rules right now. As things in... We got a little bit for the last five months, which is a big win for us because we shouldn't have had any of it. Now, 
to the folks, and I've, I've, right, I, right. I've, I've talked to Rush. Rush, Rush Limbaugh, and Andy, you're getting beat up by your own people. Yeah, and I, but I think the tone of that actually changed after my press conference right. was sort of pushed back and laid out the case, a couple different things. So far into this Congress, so much of what we've done has been unusual in that it's only required 50 votes in the Senate to get anything done. All of those Congressional Review Act pieces of legislation, the things that undo the previous administration's regulatory uh, regime, that only takes 50 votes can, can in the you Senate. pause on that for just a moment? Sure. Because the Congressional Review Act stuff is really, it, as I read it, it's very important. You could do a whole the show on just that. Legislation that was on the books but that seldom got used, and now under President Trump, up on the Hill, they're using it. Can you just explain that for a moment? Yeah, three cents explanation. Um, there's a law that says that in the early days of a new administration, they have special abilities to go and undo regulations from the late days of a previous administration. Right. They get privileged treatment in the Senate, so it doesn't take 60 votes like so many things do in the Senate. Right. And if you can pass that piece of legislation, the administration that originally promulgated that rule is permanently barred from doing the same thing ever again. So not only- the, the agency. That, the agency. Right. So not yeah. only do the 13 or 14 of these that we've passed, undo 13 or 14 of President Obama's rules, we have permanently denied those agencies from making the same type of ruling in any future Democrat administration. Again, a fascinating thing, I think it was done one time before we got here, right. where we either through 13 or 14, depending on what passed last night as I was flying out here. So um, we got that done. So that's taking place. 50 votes for that. Neil Gorsuch. 50 votes for that because they broke the filibuster. Right. My confirmation, 50 votes. All those things used to be 60, now they're 50. Fast forward to where we were on the funding bill, the appropriations bill that we're talking about. That was the first thing where we really needed 60 votes in the Senate. People ask me all the time, if the Republicans control, and this is to Ann Coulter's point, Republicans right. control the House and the Senate and the White House, why are they giving the Democrats anything? Because we have to. Um, you have to get at least eight Democrats in the Senate to vote to keep the government running. And in exchange for that, you have to give them something. Now, this is why I was so, not defensive is the right term, but I, I was surprised at the spin that somehow we got smoked on this one. Because here's what the Democrats You were got. ticked off. I saw, I, I saw the news conference. You I, were ticked I, off. I negotiated this thing. I, All right. I, you know, listen, sometimes I lose. And when I lose, I'll be the first one to tell you I lost. I didn't lose on this one. Okay. Um, the Democrats wanted a bunch of stuff, okay? The big thing they wanted was the guarantee for these bailout payments for Obamacare, what they call the, the cost sharing, uh, cost risk sharing, uh, CSR payments, uh, cost sharing risk payments um, that it has to have, the Obamacare system has to have to stay alive. And we didn't give them any of that, okay? They wanted a bunch of new bailout money for Puerto Rico. We didn't give them any money for that. They walk around and say how they got $295 million. We found money that was already in Puerto Rico and simply reprogrammed it. I could go down the list again and again and again. The big thing the Democrats wanted though, Peter, and they didn't get was they wanted to shut down. They wanted to prove to us in light of uh, our inability at that time to have passed a healthcare bill and, the, and their sort of narrative that the president can't govern and he doesn't know what he's doing they were desperate for a shutdown, and we didn't give it to them. And we proved to people in both parties, in fact, folks who don't care about politics, that President Trump can be the president, can govern, and at the same time can get his priorities funded. And that's why we come back to what you mentioned about more money for defense, more money for the wall, more money for school choice. Same things I've been talking about since I got the job. So no, I was very pleased with it. So was he. Um, we hope that every so negotiation goes so well. Specific, couple specific matters here. Yeah. Again, I'm, I, I guess oh, I what covered I'm a whole bunch of them. I know. I'm, I'm sorry. A, what I'm, no, no, no. What I'm asking you to do, I guess, is to talk back to your fellow conservatives here. So you just mentioned more money for the wall, but it's actually more money 
the big gripe was that there isn't money for construction. It's money for border control. Is that sim people no, simply misunderstanding yeah, that? Yeah, when we're splitting hairs here, there's, okay. technically there's no money for new bricks and mortar construction. Got it. Okay. But along the border right now, we have hundreds of miles of places where the fence is this tall. Okay. We have pictures of, of people climbing over the fence. We have pictures of, of people actually putting up ramps and driving over the fence. We have places where they used to be fence, but it's fallen into disarray and people could just walk right through it. We get uh, four, $347 million to fix that. We get another couple hundred million dollars in order to update our technology. In many places, having a camera, having sensors actually covers more of the border right. more effectively than just the physical structure. So what we got was what the president promised, which was border security. We were really excited about that. If the Democrats want to take credit for no bricks and mortar, that's fine. We'll take credit for securing the border because it's what we wanted to do. Okay, and then one, more, one other specific item. One of the most impressive facts during the campaign was that Donald Trump, who had been on other sides of this issue at various points, was from the beginning of that campaign until he took the oath of office and to this day, in every one of his comments, one of, every one of his public remarks, pro-life. Mm -hmm. This bill gives full funding to the Planned Parenthood. Fair enough. We'd already done a couple things. We, 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 had, to, we had, believe me, this exact conversation. Uh, this yep. bill will fund Planned Parenthood. How, why are we comfortable with that? Are we comfortable with that? What we sat down was, look, um, first of all, it had all of the bill had all of the pro-life riders in it on limiting federal money for abortion. So the Hyde Amendment. Hyde Amendment completely protected. Right. By the way, so was all the Second Amendment, but that's not your question. We had just done one of the CRAs that we talked about on Title X funding, on allowing states to withhold Medicaid funding from Planned Parenthood if they believe that Planned Parenthood was somehow uh, using the money to uh, support their abortion services, okay? It was a huge win for the pro-life movement. And, and this is the big one, sitting on the table on the same day was the health care bill. And the health care bill fully and completely defunds Planned Parenthood. So our, our point to Republicans on the Hill, our point to our base was, look, first of all, you can't doubt our commitment to the pro-life movement, number one. And number two, if you want to see your lawmakers vote for it, tell them to vote for the health care bill, which they did the very next day. So you'd look at it as a package deal. Um, and not only did we fund our priorities, as I've mentioned before, but we passed a piece of legislation out of the House, at least, um, that completely defunds Planned Parenthood. So, uh, again, another promise kept by the president. A little bit messy, but that's the, that's that's the, the way, that's the, that's the, way that the sausage time. gets made in legislation. Okay. So you've explained... There are certain kinds of legislation, and appropriations legislation is one of them, where you have to get 60 votes in the Senate for the following reason. The opposition has the right to filibuster. Republicans only have, you need 60 votes to shut down a filibuster. Yep. Republicans only have 52 members of the Senate. Therefore, you must get eight Democrats. And the need to get eight Democrats gives the other side a lot of leverage. Okay, as you are well aware, there is one other option. And the other option is to push through the legislation and when the Democrats refuse to vote for it in the Senate, appropriations, when they've refused to vote for it in the Senate, let the money under the current appropriation run out and shut down the federal government. That is an option. And here is what you said in a press conference just a few days ago. Quote. I liked this line. I thought this was a good one. <laughs> you know where I'm going. <laughs> Quote. I've been through a couple of shutdowns. If we get to September and it's business as usual and it takes a shutdown to change it, I have no problem with that. Yeah. Close quote. Explain that. Yeah, and I think it was actually the president um, that same day tweeted uh, how frustrated he was with the process. 
um, and that maybe it took a good shutdown in September to change things. So that was the context of my comment. Here's what we talk about when we say frustration and the, and the city is broken. I could give you a long list of things that is wrong with Washington, D.C., but for the folks who sort of live it and breathe it like, like you, you get down in the weeds and you understand the process, here's one of the root causes of the difficulties. The system is set up so that the House and the Senate are supposed to pass 12 appropriations bills right. every single year. Okay? Those are the spending bills. That's the end process of the budget. The budget is the start of the pipeline. Authorizations go in the middle. Appropriations go on the end. And that's how the money gets out to be spent. Right? And they're supposed to do 12 of those every single year. I was in Congress for six years. I can do the math on that, that we should have done 72. We did three. Okay? Um, that system has completely broken down in large part because of that 60-vote filibuster right. rule in the Senate. And so what you do is instead of governing the way that the founding fathers wanted you to with, with taking a, a relatively small bill, you and I can negotiate it, we'll look at it, we can read it, we know right. what's in it. We end up with these monstrosity 1,600-page bills or worse, you end up with continuing resolutions which say we don't have any idea how we're going to spend money this year, so let's just spend it the same way that right. we did last year. The power of the purse is broken and this, this, this constitutional system doesn't function and it's a really, really lousy way to run the government. Shutdowns. There were 17 government shutdowns between 1976 and 1994. Okay. They used to happen all the time. They just didn't happen with the whole government. By the way, they happened five times in the four years that Jimmy Carter was president and the Democrats controlled all the pieces of, uh, all the pieces of government at that time. It wasn't that big a deal because in those shutdowns, only one or two or three of those 12 funding bills didn't get passed. The rest of the government was operating because the process worked. That is broken down, and that's now why we have this constant brinksmanship. It's always all or nothing. It's always, oh, vote for this or the government's going to shut down, or, oh, you're going to get blamed for this or that. That's not the way this system is supposed to work. It does, it's tremendously inefficient. It's tremendously frustrating to a businessman like Donald Trump who comes in and says, why can't we just right. budget? Um, and if it doesn't change, uh, well, let's put it this way. It will change, and either Congress will change itself or the president will help okay. them. Okay, Mick, so, so one sort of historical fact and then a quotation, and I'll, last question on shutdown here. Yeah. And the, the, the history, which you know very well, of course, is that what we think of today as the classic shutdowns took place when Newt Gingrich was speaker and Bill Clinton was president. Correct. And it was the calculation of Speaker Gingrich that by refusing to pass a budget that he thought was outrageous, um, he put heat on the president. And the polls show, so there's a couple of shutdowns that takes yep. place in 94 and then takes place 94 to 95, and a couple of big shutdowns, and the Republicans were the people who got blamed by ordinary American citizens. The polls yep. showed it was the Republicans' fault. Now, here's a quotation. Again, I'm quoting from this article on your, your appropriations bill from the Atlantic Magazine. Quote, Republicans on Capitol Hill were in no mood to chance a government shutdown, that's this time around, by fighting for the president's priorities, close quote. So you've got this, your former colleagues in the House thinking, the last time Newt tried this, we were the ones who got blamed. Why do you think they'd be likely to be in a different mood in September? Um, a couple different reasons, if they are. Some of them might not be, just because it's asking them to do something different. I mean, it is, as as awful as that appropriation CR process is, that broken appropriations process is, at least they continue. They're used to it. Yeah, they're used to it. It's, it's become sort of uh, the new de facto way they run this, the Senate. But at some point, you have to ask yourself, why did you go to the Senate? 
Why did you run for Senate? Did you want to change outcomes? Did you want to impact the way that we spend that $4 trillion budget that you said at the out, out, outset of the show? Mm -hmm. Tim Scott's a dear friend of mine. Uh, I got a lot of friends in the Senate, and I think at some point they might wake up in the morning and go, you know what? It might actually be nice to be a senator and to perform the function of a senator and do more than just confirm judges and fight over filibusters and maybe impact the power of the purse of the largest economy in the world, the largest government in the world. So um, it's, 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 you got to hope that maybe they look around and say things have to change as well. Um, I hope that we get on the same page. I think there's a chance that we probably do that. Um, there's no reason to get into a, an adversarial position when it comes to a shutdown. And hopefully everybody will come around to the plans of uh, the idea that things do need to change. Okay. I'm a Democrat. I'm listening very carefully. And it mm -hmm. sounds to me as though you and Donald Trump, his tweets and your comments right now are a threat, probably an empty threat. Oh, I don't know. I've, I've, I've been through a shutdown or two before. All right. And keep in mind, um, keep in mind this. For <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to, I'm just no, trying to think, no, this, this is, gamesmanship here. No, we, I went through a shutdown. You, you, yeah, you had okay. mentioned the shutdown of 2000. I think it was 2011 or 13. I lose track of the, of the odd number of years. There was a shutdown, I believe it was in 13. We called it the, the Obamacare shutdown. It wasn't, but that's what people called it. Shut down for about 13, 14 days, I think. Um, that was where the Obama administration closed down the World War II memorial so that right. the World War II vets couldn't go to a memorial that's open, by the way. You could just walk up to it. It's like closing the Washington Monument. Somehow they're going to put a, sh you know, a shroud over it so you can't see right. it. They closed right. an outdoor monument and they put signs on Due to the government shutdown, you can't come see this today. Right. Um, there are ways to manage a shutdown to make them look bad. And there's also ways to manage a shutdown to, pro to point out to people that 87, no, 83 83% of the money that the federal government spends still flows during a government shutdown. Okay. Now you have my attention if I'm... If I'm uh, that's not a threat. Your... That's okay. just a fact that a shutdown <laughs> looks it. different during a Republican administration than it would during a Democrat. Okay. Mick Mulvaney, congressman from South Carolina. As best I can tell, looking over your record, you're a thorough conservative. This is not... I've been called worse. Yes. Okay. And uh, from a conservative district, a personally conservative, a conservative by conviction. What are you doing working for Donald Trump? You forgot a little streak of libertarianism. I got that too as well. Remember, okay. I, I was with Rand Paul in 2016. Um, with, uh, I have no idea how I got here. I, I have some indication. Um, I knew Mike Pence when Mike was in the House. Right. Excuse me. I knew the vice president. Right. I'm not supposed to do that. When you're in the House, we don't call each other by names. It's sort of hard to get out of that habit. So I knew the vice president was, he was in the house and we liked each other. And I think he liked some of the work I had done that he followed after he left to go to Indiana. And somehow I got an interview for this job, which is the job that I've wanted since I got to Congress. I remember I worked with Rick Perry in 2012 and he said, what do you want if I win? And I said, OMB director. I said the same thing to Rand Paul in 2016. And here I was in New York interviewing with Donald Trump uh, for the position that I wanted. Absolutely fascinating. It was about a 15 minute interview. Um, we talked about the entire panoply of things that the OMB de de dealt with. His grasp, by the way, of OMB um, surprised me in a, in, a, in a really good way. Most people don't know what OMB is. There was a saying at the agency that if you live outside the Beltway, you've never heard of it. Right. And if you've lived inside the Beltway, you don't know what it does. Um, but we went through, the, and he was actually weighing the, um, the various merits of taking a, an insider, someone who had been in government before, right versus a Wall Street private sector person and came up with, I think, at the conclusion that he wanted somebody who, this is so arcane, the budget process, the spending process, the regulatory process, which we also handle at OMB, is so unique that you have to have somebody who's been inside government at least a little bit to understand, if, if nothing else, the language. Mm -hmm. 
So he offered me the job, and I was uh, talking to a friend of mine who was on the transition team as I was contemplating to take it or not. And I said, look, y'all know me. I, I'm not like I'm some you know, wallflower in Congress. I'm fairly public about where I stand on things, and he and I may not agree on everything. Um, is there going to be room in this administration for dissent? Because if you're looking for a yes man, you came to the wrong place. And the guy said, no, 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 no. Not only are we looking for it and is it welcome, we are actively seeking it out. He wants to find the very smartest people in the very best areas of, of, of policy, of politics, of everything that we're gonna deal with, even though they disagree, because they disagree, put them into a room together, and that's how he's going to manage. That he will sit back and let the other people make the cases for various sides of the arguments, and whatever sort of good ideas filter through that process are the ones he's going to take and go with. Um, that, and that's happening? And that is happening now. I, I see, listen, Gary Cohn and I, Gary Cohn is a... a you know, Gary Cohn is the National Economic Council, Council Director. Director from New York, uh, former Goldman president, um, probably more self-identified, certainly identifies more as a Democrat than I do. Um, some of the best and most intellectual academic conversations about policy I've had with, with that gentleman in the last couple of weeks. It, better than any I've had on the Hill in my six years there. And when you sit down with him and Stephen Mnuchin and Wilbur Ross and Rick Perry and Betsy DeVos and, and, uh, and uh, Scott Pruitt, really good ideas come from that. It's really kind of a, a neat process to watch. We've only been there 110 days or something right. like that. So we're still in the, sort of the beginning of that pipeline, but I'm very excited about the team he's put together because uh, we don't always agree with each other. Right. Again, you're a conservative. And some of your fellow conservatives, Bill Kristol, George Will, Jonah Goldberg, all decided during the campaign that Donald Trump was just fundamentally unfit for office. Unprepared, but also temperamentally unsuited. Too, too, uh, too unpredictable, too irascible, too rash. How do you answer those? Yeah, when the, one the of never Trumpers, your fellow conservatives, and one of their fears were that it would have dramatic, long-term, negative uh, geopolitical consequences. Yes, um, I think what they're seeing is this is a real politic kind of president. Um, that the eight years of the Obama administration, what do they describe it at now? Um, uh, strategic patience or something like yes, that. Yes, I think yes, is the name right. they've given it to it. And again, against the eight years of the neoconservative approach to, to President Bush. Um, that you're seeing a gentleman who recognizes that there are some aspects of the geopolitical world that are a lot closer to the business world than people realize. Um, and say what you want to about how he handled the Syrian situation, by the way, okay? I happen to support it. I thought it was right. a, uh, the appropriate reaction at the appropriate time and the appropriate circumstances, very measured How he response. handled just the, the use of chemical weapons. Correct. And within 72 hours, the United States of America had launched 59 cruise missiles yep. on a Syrian air base, yep. on, on the Syrian government's air base. And, and, and drew the line, it's because they use chemical weapons, and if we do not take some action, then right. the, the underpinnings of international law that prohibit um, the use of chemical weapons would become eroded and it could become more commonplace without fear of retribution in the future. So you had to sort of undo the damage that the Obama administration had been done. That, okay, that worked, all right? And all of those folks who are sitting there saying, well, he doesn't have the temperament to do the job, he doesn't, they might not have liked how he did it while he was sitting at dinner with the Chinese. Um, but I can assure you one thing, it got the Chinese attention. So this is, you're arguing here that this is something, that it was a measured response. Everybody, I mean, the, the argument is he's too rash, but it was actually a measured response. It was neither Obama's inaction, nor was it George W. Bush's impulse to go in and rebuild an entire country. This was a, a limited action with a limited objective 
do not use chemical weapons, correct? Combined with the fact that it, was, it, it coincided uh, with, a, with a meeting with the Chinese and certainly put them on notice that maybe there was a new okay. uh, administration in town that would work to our advantage in our other uh, international relations. So to all the critics, um, I think if, uh, especially Mr. Crystal, uh, who has been extraordinarily harsh on the president, um, I think that they'd have to admit that the first 120, if there were, if I went down the lists of successes in the first 120 days, foreign policy, which I know drives a lot of Mr. Crystal's interest, has probably been uh, at the top of the list of successes. Okay. I'm talking to a graduate of Charlotte Catholic High School. Yes, you are. And then you went to the Jesuits at Georgetown. Yes. And as best I can make it out, you remain a serious and practicing Catholic. I try. Okay. And, uh, you know, the bishops have a little trouble with Donald Trump, the American Catholic bishops. They denounced his stand on immigration. I've got here a statement there. I looked over the, the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops website just yesterday. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to look very hard at all to find official statements denouncing Donald Trump. They called his executive order on a refugee shameful. Just a couple days, there's a, the newest statement calls on the Senate to strip out the harmful proposals from the health care bill that passed in the House and that the president supported. Yeah. What do you say to the bishops? What do you say to your fellow Catholics who say, this man is simply not with us? I, in fact, I've said this to the bishops, said this to my bishop, as a matter of fact, um, and to my parish priest, who is a brilliant man and will end up being a bishop someday soon. Um, first of all, thank you for participating in the process. Um, it, was, it had been a long time. Um, I've been practicing Catholic since I was born. I don't remember the priests going to the pulpit and talking about politics when I was a, a young man. And they started doing it. They started doing it at a strange time. After the bishops had supported the original Affordable Care Act, what we now know as Obamacare, 10 years ago, I don't remember them talking about that from the pulpit, but I do remember them paying attention after the Obamacare law had become law uh, about the lack of necessary religious protections in the bill. I'm speaking specifically of the Little Sisters of the Poor exactly. case and those types of things. So hold like, on. The Obama administration supported uh, an interpretation of the legislation that would have forced, indeed they did force, yep. the Little Sisters of the Poor, a small order of nuns who take care of old people, to supply contraceptives in their insurance policy. Correct. Okay, Mandated. go. In fact, writ large, here, here's the case that I've made to, to members of my faith. One of, the, one of the very dangerous parts, I think, of the Obama administration policies was that they were trying to redefine the practice of religion. By the way, you've heard this um, sort of percolate through the left's talking points. Uh, whenever they talk about the First Amendment now, it's not freedom of religion. They try to change it out of freedom from religion. You'll hear that on television from time to time. Um, but they try to redefine it so that religious protected activity is just that which happens inside the four walls of the sanctuary. So that if they're okay with the Catholic priests not allowing female priests, that's not discrimination. But when they run a Catholic school, they can't discriminate against, say, homosexuals because right. that's not really practicing the faith. When there's a Jewish hospital, um, that's not really the practicing of the faith. Once they, that's the Obama interpretation. Once you move outside the four walls of the sanctuary, it's no longer protected activity. That is extraordinarily dangerous. And as I sit and talk to my Catholic friends, Catholic leaders, I point out, look, that speaks to the very heart of what we do. You cannot be a Catholic and only perform the, the, your faith inside the four walls. So we will be pushing back against that. We have done that. We did the Religious Liberties uh, Executive Order this week. We talked about that a little bit if you want to. I know that the president is getting ready to go overseas uh, in about two weeks. 
and on the list of things he's going to be talking about is, is the treatment of religious minorities, Christian, Jews, other minority faiths in the Middle East. Uh, we're getting ready to convene a, a, a meeting of uh, leaders from all over the world in, in Washington. I'm participating in that in about two weeks. So um, faith is a very important part uh, of this administration, and um, I would encourage my Catholic friends uh, to focus on that. All right. The big problems. You're still in the first months of the new job, of course, and the day-to-day -day demands are intense, but longer term. Let me just ask you about the, the couple of the, the big problems. Mm -hmm. I'll quote the... Who, there's only a couple? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, in a certain sense, if you take a long enough view, there are only a couple, I think. You, you correct me. Hoover Fellow, colleague of mine here at the Hoover Institution, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, Ed Lazier, uh, writing in the Wall Street Journal just the other day, quote, the Congressional Bud Budget Office projects growing deficits exceeding 7% of GDP annually in yeah. just two decades. We're a little under 3% of GDP yep. now in annual deficits. Ed continues, unless we are willing to accept major tax increases, we will need to reduce government spending significantly, and this means re-examining entitlements, particularly Medicare and Medicaid and other health programs, close quote, and those are some of the very entitlement programs that President Trump, during the campaign, said, I'm not going to touch. So here you are, as I said in the intro, and it is simply the case that you are the man in the entire United States most responsible for the federal budget and for these looming problems. So don't screw it up. Yeah. So don't <laughs> screw it. So what are you, what are you going to do? Yeah, I, I did see You've got a case. mounting deficit. And Entitlements take up 73% of the federal budget as it is. I'm, right? a, I'm a tremendous okay. admirer of him, uh, of his. I've not met him yet. I think I'm speaking with him later on today at a forum. Yes, at, at yes, Google, yes. Which would be fantastic. Here's what I would point out to him. Um, you're, you're missing, there's, there's the missing piece of that analysis. Okay? That, that's the binary choice. Either we have to tax more or spend less. Um, and I would suggest to you that you will never balance the budget looking at it through that binary option. You cannot reduce spending enough to balance the budget. That sounds really harsh for a fiscal conservative like me to say, but I'm simply telling you that we have not paved the way politically, either Democrats or Republicans, to explain to people this is what it would take. This is what you'd have to take. This is what the government would not be able to give to you. National defense, uh, in, uh, research, Social Security, if you're going to balance the budget only by looking at the spending side. Right. At the same time, you cannot tax your way to do it. If you could tax your way to prosperity, everybody would have done it a long time exactly. ago because it's easy, okay? Growth is the missing component to what Ed had commented on, and it's what I'll talk about today. We seem to think, and embedded in those congressional budget office numbers that you mentioned, is this new normal. We seem to think that America is a post- um, developed economy state, okay, that we could only have, I think, CBO numbers from now into infinity are an annual growth rate of 1.9%. Right. So can, can I, let me, again, okay, I want to come back to that. But yeah. oh, no, 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 I, I'm just, I, when you say the new normal, so overall from the recessions, dips, and so forth, but overall the, the growth numbers from the Second World War to about the year 2000, with the exception of recessions, yep. But you, you overall, when the economy is growing well, the economy is growing up in the range of 3%, in some cases a little higher during the Reagan years. Someplace between up. three and three and a half, Correct. depending on how you want to look at it. And then since 2000, and this is important because it it's dur during both George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and it predates the crash of 2008, since 2000, the overall growth rate has just stepped down. Correct. And so we've been through a whole generation, more than 15 years, of this lower growth rate, a little over 1%, a little over 2% in that range, 
and you're arguing we don't have to live with it. And, and, here's, and here's, here's, here's how I have to, make the, here's how I have to make the case. Here's how I make the case. If you are 30 years old, right. okay, never in your adult life have you had a job in a truly healthy American economy. You think this is ordinary. When I was 30 years old, okay, uh, I quit my job because I knew that I could go off and start my own company and the economy would support that. If I had been fired, I could have easily found another job because the economy had supported that. And that freed me up to do the things that Americans have already done. We could have a whole conversation another day about the lack of new business formation. Right. Because this new normal, this 1.9% growth, people just think that's the way it is. This is not the way that it needs to be. It does not sound like much, Peter, to say, well, we've only had 2% growth over the last 10 years. We get a 3% growth. That's not that big a deal, right? We've got some numbers, and it's very difficult to do this. So I'm painting with a very broad brush. That if you had had growth at, the, at 3% from the beginning of the recession to today, okay, just 3% annual growth from 2008, let's call it, to today, the, be, the, be, the budget would be balanced. Yeah. All of that deficit is gone because the economy is so much bigger. It's the okay. power of compounding interest on an economy that's $18 trillion. So you're making a very powerful and absolutely central point, which is don't get drawn off into worrying about tax increases, trying to figure out how much you... Don't get drawn off into trying to figure out how to cut the... Concentrate on growth. Growth, growth, growth. I grant the point. The numbers work if you get a growing economy. How do you get the economy growing again? A couple different things. By the way, let, let's, let's close the book on spending because that is important, Okay. One of the reasons that the budget would have been balanced today under that hypothetical is that we have actually had some spending restraint the last couple of years. The non-defense discretionary budget since the Republicans took control of the House in 2011 is, is fairly solid. I'm not saying we need gargantuan reductions in that, but just discipline to not get ahead of yourself and not sort of spend your way into deeper problems. Kind of hold, try and hold that growth steady while you can, excuse me, hold that spending steady right. while you work on growth. What okay. do you do? And that's right. when you turn to what we're doing with the tax policy and the other thing that no one gives us nearly enough credit for, which is regulatory policy. We, there's some really good academic um, literature out there that suggests that maybe regulatory reform can have twice the impact on economic growth than tax policy can. But that's where you're seeing all of our policies. That's the beginning of our conversations. When I sit down with the president, Oftentimes, the first thing out of his mouth are, does this help us get to 3% growth? Um, that's what's driving everything in the administration because we know, and I think I've been able to convince him, it's the only way you save the country. Got it, got it. And regulatory reform is hard for the press to follow mm -hmm. because it's this regulation that gets rolled back over at that agency and it's this, these couple of regulations that get rolled back. Okay, so you also a, have to understand the real world to understand regulatory reform. And no offense intended to present company, a lot of folks in the media don't understand the real world. Okay. I used to run a, uh, a Mexican restaurant. When I ran for Congress, I owned and operated a fast, fresh Mexican restaurant. I rolled burritos the day that I announced for Congress. There was a regulation that we just killed during the, uh, during the CRA that would have required us to put nutritional information on my menu board at my, at my restaurant. We did the math. Okay, actually Pizza Hut, I think, did the math because they were right. in flight. If they had followed the regulation to the letter, their menu board would have been the size of a football field. Okay, that... Because there's so many different options of the way you can order your pizza or your Mexican food. Got it. Bingo. Right. That's, where, that's where the real world and the world of politics and regulation sort of work at cross purposes. Okay, last question, Mick. Director of Office of Management and the Budget. I'm guessing it's at least 80 hours a week of work. You and your wife yeah. still have three kids at home. 
Uh, you heard the quotations. I so, so here you go. You go into this grinder of a job, and your reward for it, you, I just quoted Rush Limbaugh and Ann Coulter, your <laughs> own side, your own side is screaming at you, do more, you're selling out. Why did you take this job? I, uh, friends of mine from the Freedom Caucus asked me one time, they said, uh, they give me a hard time. I was a founding member of the Freedom Caucus, so we're talking about something during the funding fight. And they said, well, it doesn't, doesn't look like you're winning very much over there, are you, Mick? And I said, no, no, um, I'm not winning much. I win a little bit, but at least when I lose, I'm losing at the very highest level. Um, I used to lose at the Tortilla Coast, sitting in the basement with my conservative friends, and we come up with ideas that we knew would never see the light of day. I'm sitting at the Oval Office with the President of the United States trying to make the case. And I don't convince him uh, all the time to do what I would like to do if I were president but I do get to move the ball a little bit. I get to do a little, I'm the conservative voice, the fiscal conservative voice in that White House, and I take that, that duty very seriously, and the president gives me full reign to give full throat to that fiscal conservatism. Again, not gonna agree with me all the time, but by bits and pieces, bits and pieces, I do feel like I'm making a little bit of a difference, which is why everybody goes into this line of work. I've absolutely loved it. The president has been really just a great boss to work for. Um, could you tell me about the phone call you got when you were just uh, finishing up an early morning workout? Oh, yeah. No, it was, the, it was the day of uh, the budget thing that got announced, and he called about 6.30 and said that, you 6.30 know, in the morning. Oh, 6.30 in the morning, yeah, um, and said that um, he was watching the news, and it wasn't handled very well, and I needed to fix it, and that was it. But that's what he does. He doesn't micromanage you and say, now, here's what I want you to do, this, 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 and this. He's like, look, we have a problem. Go fix it. And I think I've been able to serve that role fairly well for him to time to time. That um, when they need the message out, I can do it. When we want to push back on some narrative that is working against us and we don't think is accurate, I'm able to do that. Um, it's been a fun team to work on. All of this narrative about how it's a poisonous atmosphere in the White House. I can assure you, I love going to work. And it is an 80-hour work day. And I am away from my family for weeks at a time. My wife called me one time and said, I... I needed to come home. And I said, well, sweetie, I just came home last weekend. And she said, sweetheart, that was, that was five weeks ago. Um, it, it, it's, the, it's not only the kind of job where you, you think it's 1130 in the morning and you look up at, and it's six o'clock at night. It's the kind of job where you think it's Tuesday and it's really Sunday. Right. Um, but that's just because it's a very invigorating place to work. You're, you're, you're operating at the very highest level with the leader of the free world, um, who is a great boss to work for. And um, I hope I can stay a little bit longer. Mick Mulvaney, Director of the Office of Management and Budget. Thank you. Peter, thank you for having me. For Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution, I'm Peter Robinson. Mm -hmm.